This episode of Liberation, I present to you Jimmy Hinton. Jimmy is the evangelist of the Somerset Church of Christ and co-host of the Speaking Out on Sex Abuse podcast. Jimmy will give us details on his personal crusade on preventing sex abuse and pedophilia and how it has personally affected him and his own family and what they did about it. Please stay tuned. Um, right now, I have on the line with me evangelist of the Somerset Church of Christ, Brother uh, Jimmy Hinton. Uh, Jimmy, I discovered reading uh, multiple articles on the Christian Chronicle, uh, but I'll let him get into more of his story. Uh, Jimmy, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Lacroix. Good to have you. Good, to, good to be here. Not to have you. You're having me. <laughs> good to be on the show, man. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate you accepting our uh, our invitation. I know you have a more than busy schedule. Well, that's life. Life is uh, always busy, I think, for all of us. And this year has been uh, probably a, a little bit more so for most of us. Good, good, good. So tell me about your childhood, Jimmy. Yeah, so I grew up uh, in, in a small town in Pennsylvania, uh, southwest Pennsylvania, um, town of 240 people. So uh, uh, we were the smallest school uh, K through 12, all in one building in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, and that, uh, you know, my family, number six of 11 kids. So we made up a, a pretty significant percentage of the population in the school. And uh, then on September 11th, 2001, uh, when the terrorists hijacked the airplanes, um, my little town of Shanksville landed on the map when United 93 uh, was taken over by by brave passengers, heroic passengers, mm-hmm. and uh, they fought evil that day. And uh, that that plane, United ninety three, came to rest uh, exactly one mile from the house that I grew up in. Wow! Uh, so I mean, it's quite literally uh, in our backyard, and uh, I I know the place well. Um, I've camped out multiple times on Ground Zero. It was an old uh, strip mine for coal. Mm-hmm. And that was active um, clear up until the the late nineties. So, I mean, they literally uh, shut that mine down uh, probably a couple years before United 93 crashed. Um, We grew up going to church uh, at the church where I minister now in Somerset. Uh, It's only 10 miles away. And uh, my dad was the preacher for 27 years. uh, He preached at the Somerset church of Christ. Um, you know, we had, I think by most definitions, a, a normal um, Christian upbringing. Um, mom and dad, you know, they, they were the all-American family, um, you know, <laughs> small town. Um, everybody knows everybody, all of us siblings. You know, we fought like siblings do, but overall, you know, we're, uh, we've always been really close, really close. Um. I ended up going to Harding in uh, spring of 97. I skipped my senior year and I was the youngest in my class. So at age 17, um, I, I left Pennsylvania and headed for Arkansas. Hmm. I joined four of my other brothers uh, who were already at Harding. Wow. Uh, I graduated in May of 2001 and uh, um, I had a BA in Bible and religion. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. I always vowed that I wouldn't be a preacher. 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's those things when you tell God that you'll never do something, um, he turns you into Jonah really quickly. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, so I just vowed I would never, I would never be a preacher. I would thought about it. Um, I'd kind of daydreamed about it as a kid, watching my dad up on the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just always admired my dad and, uh, I was like, man, I, I want to grow up and, um, really influence people for, for Christ when I get older. Okay. Um, I, I took a year off after I graduated in, in one and, um, I, I drove truck. I jumped in the cab of a truck and that shocked everybody. <laughs> I just, it was something I always wanted to do. I always loved to travel and oh, okay. I, I was single. So it's like, why not? Oh, when you're single, yeah, all bets is off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I got paid to, to travel the lower 48 in Canada for, for a whole year, 135,000 miles. And I got paid to do it. It, it was, uh, it had headaches, but it, it was cool. It was a cool experience, but you know, my first load, very first load that I pulled, uh, I was going from Connecticut to Dallas, Texas, and they gave me a couple extra days on the load. So I stopped in Shanksville. Um, I parked the truck at a farm that I used to work at and, uh, you know, took off. Two days later, I'm coming into Dallas, Texas, and I'm hearing on the radio about these planes that were hitting the World Trade Centers. Mm. Uh, so I was literally there. Um parked in my in my rig you know two days before 9-11 happened um i ended up going to grad school i went to grad school for four years Uh, i did um harding school of theology in memphis Mm -hmm. graduated in 07 and uh in in january of 07 my my wife and i moved up to pennsylvania because my mom and dad had just separated and Mm -hmm. you know it just shocked all of us we had uh no idea that there was all this trouble within the marriage. Hmm. Uh, I was really close to my dad. So talking to him, it was, uh, um, from his perspective, he had no idea what was, what was going on. And, you know, mom was just kind of flying off the, off the rails and, um, he was homeless. She kicked him out of the house. Hmm. So my wife and I, we, we pitied him. We felt bad for him. Um, we moved up to Pennsylvania supposedly as a transition, Till we figured out what we wanted to do. Um, we both had master's degrees and didn't know where we wanted to live. Uh, so Somerset was always supposed to be just a temporary stopping place. Wow. Um, my dad moved in with us. He lived with us for two years. And then in 09, um, the Somerset church of Christ had been a year without a minister. Um, and they, they, they were hard after me to, to preach there and i just said i don't want to do it so he um, they, your father just simply retired or the divorce had an issue he he there were issues back in i think it was 2000 he had left the church and started his own house church in shanksville hmm. okay um and uh you know they had hired a, a, a couple people starting in 2000 up until 2008 when a good friend of mine uh, he went back to, to work on his doctorate and that left a vacancy. And um, I just didn't, I didn't want to do it. And, um, you know, I, I prayed about it. My wife prayed about it. And the more we prayed about it, we were like, for some reason, God keeps pulling us back to Somerset and we don't know why. Uh, and it was really frustrating. You know, it's one of those things in ministry, like, 
I, I just always wanted to run from God. <laughs> I, I understand um, totally. You know, not not in my faith. I I never lost faith in God. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always just, I was always just unsettled. I like to travel. I you know, I I like to see the world, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to come back to the place that I knew that I grew up and you know, and the church. It's small. Not that not that, you know. I have a love for small churches. Um, but but I just I didn't envision myself here. Uh, so in June of 2009, I accepted the full-time position. Two years later, almost to the day, um, it's just one month after. It was July, July 29th, 2011. I'm still in the honeymoon stage. Uh, you know, we're working on turning the church around and, and dealing with all the infighting that had been there for years. Um, and we saw some great progress. Mm-hmm. July 29th, 2011, my youngest sister, Alex, at the age of 29, or sorry, 21, she comes into my office and she's like, um, can, can I talk to you? She had called me a little bit before. She's like, can I, can I come up and schedule an appointment to talk to you? Um, the fact that she was formal about that was, you know, I knew there was something wrong and I just didn't know what. Uh, so she came into my office that afternoon and she handed me, um, it was an email correspondence between her and uh, somebody else who I'm very close to. And she, she just handed it to me and she buried her head in her, in her arm and she just started to weep. Mm. And I read the letter and, and it detailed when her, her and the other uh, young woman were sexually abused by my dad. Mm. Um, man, it, it was the biggest gut punch that I had ever received. Uh, cause we had no idea. None. Mm. Um, and here's my baby sister who not only, not only was I finding out that my dad was a child molester, but he did it to his own people. flesh and blood. My God. Um, and he was attending my church. You know, he he was the the proud dad beaming with pride, sitting in you know two rows back. Um, every Sunday he was there, man, and it, we just had this moment where our entire world started coming crashing in on us instantly. And, and, and you know what? I was going to get to that. Um, let me let me rewind a little bit. Yeah, go for it. Um, you know what? Let's start with you vowing not to preach. Uh, I know you, you got into that a little bit. What was it about preaching per se that you wanted to escape from? I I always tell people, you know, I I think this has been probably the biggest frustration and the biggest advantage in my life simultaneously. Um, you know, I, I was born in 1979. And if you look it up, like we fall right between Gen X and millennials, there is no label for people born in 1979. There's no label. Um, I'm a middle child, number six of 11. So I have five older, five younger. Um, I've never known where my place is in this world. Uh, Okay. I, I went to Harding as an undecided. That was my major for two years. I, I took Gen Ed and I just kept putting it off and putting it off. And finally, 
my advisor was like, man, you got to pick a major now. So was like, so was it almost like a rite of passage that you just felt like you just should go to Hardeman? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't put any thought into going to Harding. It was just, it's where my brothers were and you yeah. know, I, I didn't want to make a decision. So for me, that decision was already made. Um, <laughs> and it was great. I mean, it was a great experience. It, it, it was fun. It was, uh, I had a really good college experience. Um, I don't have any regrets, mm. but I just, I, I've always been in this position where I, I don't make decisions well, uh, definitive decisions. Like I have, I dream big. Um, but when push comes to shove and I have to actually make decisions, I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't really know if that's a good fit for me. So I think that was the biggest thing with ministry. You know, I was a business major for a semester. My advisor was like, pick a major. I was, I, I said, okay, business management. <laughs> he was like, do, do you want to think about that a little bit? I was like, nope. Nope. <laughs> yeah. So, you sound like a 79 kid. I, I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's amazing. Like we fall right on this hard line of, you know, we grew up in the, in the analog world, uh, but we were introduced to the digital world. And so everybody who was born after us, even just a couple of years, like they pretty much grew up in a digital age mm-hmm. and that's all they know. They don't, you know, they don't know how to work a rotary phone. They, you know, <laughs> they don't, they don't know how to work a cassette tape. Um, <laughs> you know, you say VHS yeah. and they look at you like, what in the world is VHS? Mm-hmm. You know, and so we grew up in both worlds. <laughs> so, so for me, there's just always been this, one foot's been in in two different worlds always and i always feel divided and you know part of me wanted to go into ministry and to preach and the other part of me didn't and part of me wanted to go to grad school and part of me didn't part of me you know and i've always just been torn so when we came up to somerset um i I just wrestled with that and i was like man i don't I don't want to preach. I don't want to be here. I don't. And God kept, he kept chasing me. Yeah. So now when you were, while you were driving and I understand what you mean, as far as not losing your faith, you just don't want to be, I consider it being grounded. Yeah. Uh, because I went through a scenario at the local congregation I had been growing up with. And as you said, infighting just that and the third and i was right on the cusp where i had just graduated just bought my first car second car actually getting ready to move out and i said i don't need this church thing anymore yeah Um, and all that comes with it i just want to live life never lost faith never lost my trust in god just Jonah is the perfect description. Yeah. Yeah. Just always running and and not because, not because you're afraid of the work. I've never been afraid of work. I've been working full time since I was 11 years old. You know, I grew Mm. up working on a local farm. I'm not afraid. If anything, I'm a workaholic. Um, And I don't think Jonah was running because he didn't, he wasn't up to the task. I think Jonah just, you know, it it really bothered him that that he was the one chosen mm-hmm. um when there's millions of other people who could be chosen 
Um, why am I chosen yeah. for these people? <laughs> why me for these people? That's right. Yeah. And and I think I get it and I think you get it. Yeah. So we're not running from God per se. Um, we're just running from a calling. Yeah. Um, so while you were driving your trucks, did you did you stop attending church altogether for that moment? Um no, I it was it's a really bizarre lifestyle. Um because you you know, when you're put under a load, you, you take it, you know, you're, you're on a time crunch. And if, you know, if, if you're driving a full day on a Sunday, mm-hmm. you're driving a full day on a Sunday. Yeah, uh, of course, that was before live streaming and podcasts and all that. So I didn't have access to any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but every time that I could find a church, um, man, I would wheel in and I would, I would take that opportunity. Okay. Um, so, you know, I actually, I would say probably 50% of the time when I was on the road, I, I attended church. Um, but I, you know, my Bible was in my cab and I, you know, I read every day and, uh, but it's not the same, yeah. you know, I, I missed it. That, that was a big, that was a huge thing that I missed when I was on the road. I understand that. Yeah. God, I, unlike you, I did everything possible to get away from church. Um, and like, like you, I remember, you know, jobs offering overtime on Sundays, uh, third shift, or you name it. I took it. It was it was a yeah. convenient excuse not to go. Mm-hmm. So, enough about us. Well, enough about me. <laughs> <laughs> um, two years, you mentioned, getting this ministry up and going. Um, well, you know what? Even before that, what did the congregation leadership see in you to come after you, knowing that there was some uh, issues with your father prior? Yeah, I, I think part of it, you know, part of me thought, okay, are they just doing this out of convenience? You know, here's here's a young guy, somebody they know. I grew up in the church. I know the church. Um I'm here. Am I just a warm body with a degree that they're, you know, they're just being convenient and trying to hire me? Mm. Um, because because that was really offensive if that was the case. Yeah. Uh, because I never want to go into ministry just because it's convenient. Um. So you know that was that was a big reason why I really wanted to pray about it. But I think, I I, I think honestly, the reason that they wanted to look at me so hard is because. I knew the church and I knew the church's problems mm. and I've never been the kind of guy to, to shrink back and avoid problems. I don't run into them. I don't like confrontation, but you know, there were some ugly, ugly meetings at that church uh, mm-hmm. with the former minister who I was good friends with, you know, when Natalie and I moved up in 2007, we didn't even want to be a part of that congregation. And so when they offered to hire me, I was like, I wouldn't send my worst enemy to this church, you know? <laughs> and that's just, I, I think they appreciated the frank conversations. Cause I, I'm not the kind of guy who tells people what they want to hear. Um, and I think that was part of God's preparing me for advocacy work because I'm not about, you know, sitting on the sidelines, fanning people while they behave badly and telling yeah. them how great they are. Um, I have no interest in that. Um, and, and you lose a lot of friends that way. Um, but ministry, ministry is never about 
Jesus going around and starting campfires and inviting people to sing Kumbaya around the campfire, you know, like he dug into the really ugly corners of people's lives um, and freed them from oppression and stood up for them when nobody else would. Right. Um, So anyway, you know, I, I think that's honestly the bigger reason why they looked at me is I I just knew the church. I knew the people um, and, and I refused to shrink back from the problems. Yeah, that's admirable. Um, so then the explosive news. Um, so from what I understand, okay, your sister told you, along with someone else, uh, and you guys had to let this process play out, had to keep it quiet. But then when the explosion occurs, what kind of light did that put your family in? Yeah, so, I mean, everything happened at warp speed times 10 Mm um you know i i got the news on a friday 30 minutes before my wife got home from work she was um at the time she was teaching in public school so i had a 30 minute window to process and then to tell my wife Mm. 30 minutes after that i had a wedding rehearsal to show up to for some of my church members um the next day I had a wedding to perform where my dad and my sister, Alex were both there. Um, Sunday I had to get up and preach Monday morning. I was in the police station reporting it uh, with my mom. So, you know, and then from there, I mean, it just, it just catapulted into, into this like warp speed. Okay. How do we tell the church? How do we break the news of the church? When do we tell the church? Um, Are there victims at church? Um, how many victims does my dad have? Cause you know, obviously there, there are clearly two that we know of. Um, is he doing it right now? Is he abusing kids right now? You know, there were just all these questions and, and no answers to, and, um, yeah, everything happened really quickly. So the church knew within, within one week of reporting dad, um, Natalie and I selected a small group of people in the church to tell. Mm. Um, and, and the time wasn't right to tell the entire congregation. And that was all coordinated with the detective who, uh, who was on the case. So I, I worked, I mean, very closely with her and, um, everything was coordinated with her. She was, she was wonderful throughout the whole process. So that was, uh, outside of your sister, the other young lady that came forth, was she part of the congregation or no? Uh, it, formerly was uh but was not currently there just because you know she was living elsewhere um and you know we we found out i actually found out um see it was three weeks from the time we reported till my dad was arrested Mm. um and i found out as the day before maybe two days before he was arrested my dad took me out for coffee and he just kind of throws it out there just, you know, in casual conversation. I, I still remember verbatim what he said to me. He said, by the way, just so you know, <clears throat> just so you know what you're dealing with when I get locked up, here are the names of the victims. And he just started rattling them off just like, like he was reading a menu at Starbucks. Oh my God. And, and we did have, um, he did have victims in my church, young victims that he was abusing up to the time of his arrest. 
and that was a whole nother layer of trauma and you know just that that gut punch of it, it's the worst case scenario and you're you're getting the news of the worst case scenario back to back to back to back just when you think things don't don't get any worse or can't get any worse you get another bombshell mm. and you know it was it was three weeks of rapid fire like that. And I just didn't know, I didn't know how to process it all. How how did you manage underneath that stress? I don't think I did. You know, I, I, and I don't want to sound cliche, but you know, I honestly think the Holy spirit carried me through that time. Uh, Cause when I go back and try to really sit down and think about it, I don't have many memories from, that few week period mm. um you know and i think it's part trauma uh, the brain the ba- brain remembers what it needs to remember in oh. times of trauma and everything else it just throws out um and i think the other part is there was just so much happening so quickly that it, it was impossible to process it all and i was still preaching mm. you know i did I, a church of 60 70 people um we didn't have any elders or deacons at the time. Uh, you know, there's no structured leadership. So I, I tell people like, as far as leadership, primarily I was it at the time. Mm. I, I got to admit, and I don't want to sound cliche, but in reading your story, especially with the condensed time frame, I understand Jesus and sweat and blood because yeah. I, I, I yeah. can't imagine it. I can't yeah. I don't think I could have got to the point personally. I don't think I could have got to the point of authorities. I think I would have definitely laid hands on my father. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was not in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's especially consider a sibling involved. So yeah, it's, it's definitely commendable. Um, I definitely come to appreciate your curtness in your conversation. I, I meant to mention that, as you said earlier, yeah, thank you. Because tolerating something like that, it's uh, it's uh, it's unthinkable. It is, and, and you know, and that's. I mean, well, to back up a little bit, mm. you know, this is something that I I just finished a, a memoir uh, where I tell the story in in much greater detail. Um, that's going to be released in um, as of now uh, in February, mid February. Um, and the, the title of the book is The Devil Inside, uh, how my minister, minister father abused uh, victims in our home and church for decades and how I stopped them. Um, you know, I couldn't tell my dad that it was mom and I who reported him. Hmm. And so when he left the police station, I'm good friends with a detective. You know, it's a small town. Uh, I drove truck back here locally with uh, with her cousin. Uh, I married two of her nephews. I officiated their weddings. Um, you know, and, and she is a good sex crimes detective, and she's been doing it for years. Mm-hmm. She called me crying after my dad left the police station, and mm-hmm. she said, "I'm I'm I'm sorry that I'm so rattled." And she's like, "It takes a lot to rattle me." She's like, Jimmy, it's, it's bad. Mm. She said, in all the years that I've been doing this, she said, 
I think the worst sex offender just walked out of this police station that's ever come through the doors. Wow. Um, and she said he has a lot of victims and she said, he's probably going to call you to confide in you because, you know, clearly I, you know, I, I protected you and didn't tell him that you reported no sooner. She hung up, my phone rang and it was my dad. Mm. And that's when you guys had that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, there's so many, so many layers and they come at you so fast. You don't, you don't have time to process it. So I I was completely unprepared. No, no, there's absolutely nothing. I mean, I didn't, but I didn't have any training whatsoever. Mm. Um, And that's why, you know, I, I, I talk about the Holy spirit and I say, you know, the spirit really guided us through making very wise decisions in rapid fire because you have to think on your feet and you have to process and you can't, you can't say, well, maybe there was a misunderstanding somewhere. I mean, can you imagine how detrimental that would have been to my sister and all the other victims? Um, he needed to be stopped. Absolutely. Absolutely. The spirit is definitely the unsung hero of the Godhead. Absolutely. Yeah. And the unmentioned person in this story, and I'm really was wishing she could be here. Your mother. Yeah. How did that impact her? Um, she, she is still, I mean, all of us are still processing, but I, I, I think for her, there was an added dimension because, you know, and I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit. I had at the time, my oldest daughter was 15 months old. Um, and I had the question, the dreaded question that every other parent in my church, I knew they were asking it in their mind. They didn't say it out loud, but I knew they were asking it was my kid one of his victims? Mm. Um, We, we escaped fortunately. And I, and I feel guilty saying it, uh, but we escaped the hell of having our daughter victimized by him. My mom didn't. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't just Alex, you know, and I can't say without permission how many in the family, but, you know, Alex wasn't alone. As far as family members? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and so there's there's that trauma of finding out the, the worst case scenario besides for death mm-hmm. that some of your kids were abused in the worst possible way by a child abuser. But then that child abuser was your husband. So I I know you're open about it and it, it kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. So you said that there was other family members, what are also other siblings also? Yes. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I think, I think for mom, that was just such a a sucker punch because the person who she thought 
she fell in love with. Um, you know, think about your spouse. Yeah. I mean, that you're, that's the one person who you are unified in, in the most unique way mm-hmm. uh, on so many different levels. Um, and all of a sudden you find out he, and she, she put it this way before, and she's spoken publicly about this. So I'm not, you know, I'm not betraying any confidence with mom, mm-hmm. but she said, imagine finding out that your spouse cheated on you and how devastating that is. And then imagine that he cheated on you, not with an adult woman, but with little children. And then imagine finding out he cheated on you with your own children. Um, you can't even put that into words. And I, so, you know, my heart breaks for my mom and she's such a strong woman and, and she's, you know, she's just handled taking care of all of us really well uh, in the aftermath of that. And she did not sign up for that. And I, you know what? I have a really newfound respect for her in light of the information you just told me, because I, I must admit I was late finding your podcast. Like I said, I came across the article about you in the Christian Chronicle, I don't think I discovered it till about 2019. You guys were already knee deep in the podcast. Yeah. And I almost binged it and I'm still catching up. Yeah. Yeah. And with that being said, the information that you just mentioned and your mother still finds a way that I feel not only her pain through the podcast, but when she's able to laugh, um, and the fact that she's still holding up strong, I have a, a tremendous, tremendous yeah. amount of respect for her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, me too. She's, uh, she's a, an incredible lady. I mean, that's that. Um, it, another cliche remark. That's enough for someone to go jump off a bridge. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do, um, do you find yourself finding, um, cause you said, you know, you, you didn't, you were scared of the idea, if you will, that something may have happened to your child. Do you feel a sense of guilt that nothing happened to you per se? I don't know if guilt is the right word. Um, I don't know. It's one of those things, again, how do you, how do you put that into words? Uh, you know, I was spared. Other people weren't. Uh, I don't, I don't know why the, you know, there's not any rhyme or reason, uh, aside from the gender thing, but you know, when you know things about abusers, even that doesn't really matter. Um, I, I don't know. Guilt probably isn't the right word. Um, feeling, feeling my heart rended on on behalf of other people just torn to shreds um again uh, you know i'm i'm kind of fumbling around here for words because i i can't i can't think of any to really describe this is it almost Um, to like a survivor's remorse type thing yeah uh yeah i think i think part of that but then there's this this added burden of looking into the eyes of people who 
you know survived the most tortuous hell on planet earth um and you know i'll never forget this moment and i i still get choked up when i when i think about it and talk about it but um he was not charged on any family members uh, because of the statute of limitations in pennsylvania Mm. Um, he was charged on a family that attended another church here in town Uh, my dad was double dipping he was attending our church and another one um, because that got him access to more victims Mm. Um, and he had abused these little sisters and and i had the father of those victims uh, his name is dave he spoke at one of my trainings that i did locally and of course he couldn't get a babysitter and didn't want to get a babysitter for his kids. So he brought his kids and just kind of let them play in a back room while, while he was speaking. I was the first one at the building. He was the second one to show up. So it was just us and his little daughters. First time that I had um, encountered them face to face. And Dave introduced me to his daughters and he said, Hey girls, this is, this is Jimmy. And then there was this long pause and he couldn't say my last name. And then he just kind of sighed and he said, Hinton. And he said, this is the man who stopped John from doing all those horrible things to you. And those little girls, um, the oldest one was probably 12 or 13 at that time. And these girls just didn't even hesitate. They just came up and they just surrounded me and they hugged me and they just looked up and they were all crying and and they said, thank you, man, that ripped my heart out and shredded it into a million pieces. And I thought, all I could think in my mind was, I hate you, you lousy SOB. Mm -hmm. That's honest. Because, because he caused that pain. Mm Mm-hmm and that destruction. And he did it. He did it willfully. He did it on purpose. He did it methodically. Um, He planned, he plotted, he lied, he cheated, he manipulated. He did that on purpose. Mm. And, and so, you know, trying to put that into words, um, would I take the place of every one of those victims in a heartbeat? Um, But that wouldn't make anything right. You know, no. It's just it's an unnecessary evil that needs to be stopped. Amen. How did um? Because y- you are naturally going to be lumped in by default. What gave the victims confidence in coming to you? You know, um, considering everything that's happened and. You know, they they definitely had to put it out in their mind that maybe he's part of it. Or Yeah. You know, people out of our sure. own ignorance and, and I say that in a kind way because the things that you don't know, you're ignorant to. So sure. Out of your own ignorance, you begin to think that this is hereditary. This is something mm-hmm. that if his father did it and he's following his father's footsteps, he's mm-hmm. gonna do the same thing. What do you think led to um, your sense of credibility that they can come to you about these things? 
honestly, I think the biggest thing was um, believing Alex and taking action. Um, you know, she didn't come to me so that she could in, in, excuse me, in my mind, she didn't come to me so that she could just get it off her chest and, and vent and go her separate way and, you know, live her life and just move on. That, that's not why she was in my office that day. The reason, the reason she was in my office is she expected something to happen. Mm-hmm. And the only reason survivors of abuse ever tell anybody is because they expect something to happen. Whether that's to receive validation, that they're not crazy, that, that, that they're not broken, that they're not, uh, that they're not used, you know, all the, th- all the horrible things that they're told by their abusers every survivor of abuse tells somebody for a reason. Um, and so for me, I never hesitated. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like I had to think about it and like, Oh my goodness, what, what do I do? And give me seven days to pray about it and let me get other leaders together. And, you know, we'll try to figure this thing out. I mean, instantly the, the, the second she told me the first thing out of my mouth is I believe you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we praise about that. And, and the next thing out of my mouth was, regardless of what happens to our family or our family's reputation or to my job, none of that matters. Yeah. What matters is that it stops now. That's and good. I looked her in the eyes and I said, the the only thing, the only thing that I'm able to promise you right now is that it's. I'm going to stop this. That's good. That's good. So explain putting the parts uh, back together with your family. How how do you put those, the the broken pieces back together with your family and with your um, church family as well? Yeah. um, A lot of, a lot of non-judgmental listening. Uh, We had, people both in the church and in my family who i mean they were just so angry with god i mean i was angry with god um i i I had a day where i just cussed god out verbally out loud i was screaming Mm -hmm. at him i went hoarse from yelling at god i was so angry um at what he allowed for to happen um to all these innocent little babies Mm -hmm. um other people left, they left God altogether. They didn't want anything to do with God. Um, some family members. Um, and that, that's, that's okay. That's where they're at. Um, that's how they're processing grief and trauma. Uh, so, you know, I think part of that healing process is realizing that God is big enough and merciful enough uh, to take people where they're at, even if that means they don't believe in him or they don't think they believe in him at the time. Um, There are seasons for everything. And I think in the church, one of the things we're so guilty of is always trying to maintain a season of what looks like normalcy and joy and splendor and, uh, you know, being upbeat and happy. And, and anybody who, who doesn't fit the part, uh, we either, 
spin them around on their heels and tell them to go find somewhere else where they can be consoled because they're kind of dragging the mood down. Um, we either do that or we shame them for feeling sorrow and anger. Um, and so the, you know, the, the biggest turning point for me at my congregation in my own healing and healing as a church was I, I had talked to some people who are in kind of an in, informal leadership role. And I said, can I, can I just get permission to just yell at God for one sermon? I want my 30 minutes with him publicly. Um, and they, you know, they said, yeah, you know, they could see I was struggling and they were struggling. And I said, I, I just want 30 minutes to just pray some of the, preach some of the Psalms and to just vent my anger at God, just direct. I just, I want to point every arrow that I have at God because he allowed this. Mm -hmm. Um, and they let me do it. And I told them there's not going to be a happy ending. There's not going to, at the end of the sermon, I'm not, I'm not going to be like, but God is good all the time. I'm like, cause that's not where I'm at right now. I was like, I'm, I'm pissed at him. Yeah. That's honest. <laughs> I'm angry. That's very honest. Um, <clears throat> I, I preached that sermon and I wish I still had that recording. We don't oh, have I it anymore. I wish I could hear it. And at the end, every single person came up and surrounded me and i mean man we were a hot mess that day <laughs> mm. uh we're we're crying we're sobbing and everybody said why have we never heard a sermon like that before mm. to be able to express our pain and our sorrow and to just puke that on god mm -hmm. um and I really think that's what Jesus meant when he said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, mm. and I'll give you rest. It's not, not telling them like, you know, put a smile on your face and, you know, come to your prayer closet and, you know, we'll clean it up and sanitize it, make it all look good. And then you're going to walk out feeling great about yourself. Right. I think Jesus oftentimes received those kinds of, angry recipients who people just were fed up with life they were just tired man they're so tired our, our biggest misconception is that we have no room to be frustrated yeah God. when there's clear examples there yeah um you know god he lets us explore our frustrations, our anger. There's a blasphemy portion that isn't acceptable. Sure. But even in a lot of our quote unquote biblical heroes, they were given that time and space to vent. Yeah. I mean, I think of Job. Uh, look at Job when everything was stripped away from him and his friends were cliching him into the ground. Well, what secret sin do you have? You know, God would never, God would never allow bad things to happen to good people, you know, on and on and on and on. And Job is, Job is screaming at God. Mm -hmm. um, your arrows are in me. You're like a lion waiting in a bush and you've come to attack me. I mean, he's uh, over and over and over. 
and Job isn't cursing God. He curses himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Job never curses God and says, I wish, I wish you never existed. Um, Job is saying, I, I curse myself. I curse my birth. And I, I would have, it would have been better if I had never been born. Um, you know, a couple of things stand out in Job. One, um, Job says, when he's kind of retorting back to his friends, he says, though everything's been taken from me, one thing I will maintain till I die, I will not give up my integrity. Mm-hmm. So one thing that Job had control of in his life, the only thing in Job's life that he had control of was his integrity. Absolutely. And he wasn't letting go of it, you know, Job 27. And then at the end of Job, God comes back and he blasts Job's friends. And he says, why have you not spoken rightly of me as my servant Job has? You know, there's room, there's room for lament. And there's, we should be angry about injustices. We should be angry when people are tortured and when people die and when people die for unjust reasons, we should be angry about that for a season. Yeah. Um, that's a proper response to people doing horrific things to, to people we love and we're closest to. Yeah. We, we tr- what's the best way to put this? We try to ignore our humanity. Yeah. And that leads to breakdowns that leads to not being able to come back to the Lord, if you will, because yeah, you feel like you can't express your humanity. All of a sudden a wall gets built up. This is God. This is me. He doesn't care for me. Oftentimes, even with marriages, you're, there's no clarity gained until there's a sense of, Hey, I don't like when you do this. I don't like the way you handle X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And this frustrates me. Yeah. And if you don't address those things, there becomes, even in, like I say, even in marriages, there becomes a resentment. There becomes yeah. a sense of hate or you just, um, or you just shut down. Yeah. So yeah, I, I can definitely see why that was a healthy experience for your congregation. Yeah. That was a huge, I mean, a huge tipping point for, um, both for myself and for the congregation. And that, that allowed that a lot. I think, I think the biggest thing that allows is it allows you to see with objective eyes, mm-hmm. gaping wounds that are oozing out pain. Um, yeah. Because I, you know, I just told, I told him before I preached that sermon, I said, I'm so tired of pretending. I'm tired of pretending that I'm okay when I'm not mm. I'm tired of, standing up and acting like I have to be strong for, for the church. And I was like, I don't, I'm not strong. I'm I'm absolutely broken and shattered into a million pieces. And I, I need to bleed out. Yeah. You know, I, I need somebody to say, Holy cow, you are really wounded. And the best way that we can treat these wounds is to triage it and to start give, getting you care. You have to address the fact that you're wounded in the first place Mm. Um, and we don't do that well in the churches. We, you know, we tell people, well, just pray more or I'll be praying for you. And we kind of sit, you know, we send them on their merry way as if God's going to wave a wand over them and, and fix them up and make them all better. And it doesn't work that way. It was, it wasn't designed to work that way. Not at all. Not at Um, all. 
you know, we're, we're the hands and the feet of Jesus. And oftentimes we don't act like it um, for, for different reasons. But, you know, I just, I, I reached a point of being so fed up and everything was coming crashing down. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to break. If we don't address the wounds that are, that are here, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to bleed out. And there, there's not going to be any, anything left in me. And I can't do that. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Um, another unsung hero, uh, I'm sure for you, especially your wife, yeah. how impactful was the support that she provided? Yeah. So I, I actually wrote a little mushy, um, <laughs> a, a little mushy moment in my memoir. Uh, between my wife and I, uh, and my wife will tell you, like, she apologizes all the time. She's like, I'm sorry, I'm not supportive. And I'm like, I I don't need you to coddle me. I don't like, that's not fair to you. Um, but, but what my wife did is she held my hand, you know, when, when we had to inform people, when we had to tell people it, it's, it's that gut punching, horrific, unglamorous unthankful getting crap flung all over you those moments where you just have to you just have to do the right thing mm-hmm. and you just have to tell people what happened and tell people like you know i had to inform people that that their kids were raped by my dad um natalie was by my side it, she didn't say anything um but she was there she was present and, and so, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, she, w- without her, I couldn't have done it. There's not a chance I could have done it. And yeah. so I, you know, I tell her like, your support is in being present. Your support is in letting me bleed out when I need to bleed out and, and talk to you when nobody else will listen. And, you know, that's your support. Yeah. Oftentimes a person's uh, presence is the best present. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So as far now, as far as the congregation, um, were there a lot of people that left after the news? There is a really bizarre thing that happened. Um, and I never, in a million years, I wouldn't have predicted it. Our, our church did the exact opposite. Um, we grew and shattered every record that you can imagine um, in, in a couple years, uh, you know, we grew from like 60 on, on a sleepy Sunday, we had 60 to 70 max mm-hmm. um, uh, people not really interested in uh, volunteering and, you know, like just kind of, they were just kind of there. Um, and I'm not, I'm not minimizing that because I mean, they're fantastic people, great people. Mm-hmm but there was never this sense of unity and people working together for the kingdom. Um, that turned around and, and, you know, we were 110, 120 on, you know, on Sundays we had uh, in one year, we had 25 baptisms. And I think, I think 24 out of the 25 people not only stayed at the church, but they were, they were actively involved in ministry. Uh, yeah. They were serving, they were, they were rolling up their sleeves and they were, they were helping people. Uh, you know, we were looking at um, 
different buildings because we were getting squeezed out of our little 5,000 square foot building. Um, and then, and then the bottom fell out and people started leaving. Mm. And the first people who started leaving were the closest friends of my wife and I. Um, the last people that we thought would leave were the first people out the door. So um, the growth, did the growth happen prior to the news or after? No, it was after. Yep. It was after. And so, so you experienced the growth and then people started leaving. Yep. So the, so the, the, the boom period was um, about 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the climax of that. Uh, I reported in 2000, uh, 2011, so, you know, a few years after, and then, um, and then the decline really started in 2015. And that was, that was the same time my oldest brother at the age of 42 dropped dead of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And that, that was in May. We had a nine day old baby. My youngest was nine days old when my brother Mike died. Sorry for your loss. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and, you know, and we were processing all over again. And I was like, I don't know how much more heavy stuff like this our family can process without without disintegrating. And, you know, what's left of us is so broken and so empty. Um, and that may have been part of why people, people were leaving. They just felt, they felt that I was drained. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I was very candid about suffering and, and about justice. And, you know, we, we were no longer the, the cool, happy, hip church anymore. And what, what was interesting is, you know, the numbers declined dramatically. Hmm. Uh, we lost, I mean, we're down now, especially because of COVID. Hmm. We're down to maybe 50 people. Hmm. Um but God did an incredible thing through that. And I think a lot of times we look at numbers, especially as ministers and that gauges our success or our failure. Mm-hmm. And I, I was ready to resign and, you know, I was the biggest failure. I was just another 1979 loser that couldn't find my place in the world, you know, and on and on and on. And, and finally my, my wife, she looked at me and this was another one of those God moments where she was just there. She was just present. She goes, Jimmy, she's like, I know you're down and I know we lost like every able-bodied volunteer and person who was willing to work for the kingdom um, and, and, you know, teach Bible classes and on and on and on. She goes, but look at who's here. She's like, they're here. They're here because they want to be here. And she said, look at the stories don't just look at the person who's in the pew. Look, look at the stories behind them. Mm-hmm. And we both realized that every single person who was left, including us, had some traumatic story in their life of abuse or chronic health or losing family members or being shunned from other churches. And we were the only church that would, that would take them in that we looked around and we're like, look at what God has blessed us with. It's a group of 
very broken people who don't have to pretend that we're something that we're not. Yeah. And uh, yeah, God is, God is blessing. God is blessing this group um, in big ways. That's good. So um, your uh, siblings, how are they, how are they rebounding? Everybody's doing well. Um, Our, our family is incredibly supportive and at no point, from the very beginning that we suffer any disunity within our family. And and I think that's tremendous. I think that's another miracle that nobody, nobody in the family ever pointed fingers. Nobody ever, you know, nobody questioned, (coughs) excuse me, where other people are at. We, we just, everybody just loved on each other. Okay. <clears throat> and I read about your sister, you know, she began to definitely question her faith that the same thing happened with some of your other siblings. <coughs> I can Excuse imagine me. naturally so. Um Yeah, I'm yeah, with some of them. Okay. And okay. some of them are still there and you know, and again, that's that's okay. I think Jesus never forced himself on people. Correct. Um and and I think in light of where some of my siblings are, like I, I'm surprised more of us aren't there. Amen. Um, That's and, honest. That's honest. And again, you know, I think, I think God's mercy and I'm not, you know, I'm not preaching people into heaven. Um, but you look at, look at who Jesus had mercy on. And it was, people who struggled with doubt and disease and brokenness and suffering. And he extended increased mercy to those people. Mm -hmm. And I think if the church behaves that way, and by the way, you know, people who, who oppressed people, Jesus extended no mercy to them. He never invited them into the flock. He never said, this is a place for everyone. All are welcome. He didn't say that. Mm -mm. Um, Instead, he gave a discourse in in John ten about the good shepherd, and he's like, you know, the the shepherd who leaves the sheep when the wolf comes, so that he can devour my sheep. That's the hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. Right. You know, the good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. He protects them from the wolf. Um. So. Yeah, I you know I think I think if the church behaved more consistently with how we how we exercise mercy um, I think people who've experienced different traumas in their life um, wouldn't be so quick to give up on God yeah absolutely. or at least they would find you know find a, a, a safe space to start turning back to God mm-hmm. and, and and you know my preacher has put it this way and it's very accurate is you know, we come to Sunday school classes, we come to uh, worship, but there is no experience. We're just yeah. casual acquaintances with, mm-hmm. um, with God. We have not made that intimate experience. There's no relationship there. Yeah. It's, just, it's basically coming to work, punching in, punching out. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. So let's get off of that just a tad. Let's transition. Sure. Um, 
in your opinion, why is there such a premium on um, forgiving and assisting the predators and not the victims? It's um, it's a little bit complex, and I'll I'll, I'll try to give the Cliff Notes version because um, I've really wrestled with this, and I, I was like, why is it that we've had this spoon-fed view of forgiveness that forgiveness is unconditional? And especially in the churches of Christ, it's perplexing to me because, you know, we put such a an emphasis on repentance and baptism that, I mean, if, if you think about this, the irony is we create fictitious scenarios where somebody dies in a car crash on the way to be baptized and they're burning and riding in hell. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like we go out of our way to show the importance of this conditional forgiveness that's that that's the prerequisite is repentance and baptism and you know to the point where we terrify these people and we're like are you sure you don't want to jump in a snow drift right now you know i could i could warm it up and we we could make that a puddle because if you get in the car you could die on the way and you'd be riding in hell so you know like we have that view of of God not forgiving people whose heart is right. But then for the person whose heart is wrong and twisted and gross, and they are a wolf by definition. And I tell people theologically, the word wolf is used often in scripture. Never, ever, ever are those people ever welcomed into the fold. Never. I can't find one occurrence of a wolf where Christians are told to, to go nurture them and, you know, treat them with kindness and bring them, bring them to church and pray for them. Never. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. So, so the term wolf is describing not what they do, but who they are. It's their identity. They're a wolf to their core because they derive pleasure in inflicting harm on innocent people. That's who they are. Mm -hmm. You don't change who they are so you know i think this thing with forgiveness we've pop culturalized it and i think i don't know if the church started doing that or the field of psychology started doing that first i i, I don't know historically i don't know who did that first but but we've turned forgiveness into this into this emotional event mm -hmm. where it's it's for your inner healing it's for it's for you it's not for the person who sinned against you it's for you it's for your own healing in fact the person who did all these awful bad things to you on purpose won't even know that you're forgiving him and and i started thinking about this you know in in this whole meltdown that i had after finding out about my dad i started challenging that because i i never challenged that view before and then I started challenging that, and I was like, man, if, if we're to forgive as the Lord forgives, first of all, the Lord puts conditions on forgiveness. You repent or you're not forgiven. I mean, there are countless scriptures in the Bible where God says, I will not forgive your trespasses mm -hmm. because they're unrepentant. The, the only remote thing I can think of is even at the cross, you know, forgive them for they know not what they do. But like sure. you said – He's asking in 
even when I conceptualize that, it's it's almost as him him saying, God, don't take them out right this moment. Give them some yeah. time and space. Forgive them for this moment. Let them hopefully let them uh, approach approach Pentecost. Yeah, but it, but even that, you know, even that Jesus puts this condition on it, or or at least a clarification. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's that ignorance it, thing again. It, it's and and Paul. Paul emphasizes that when Paul says, I received mercy because I sinned in ignorance and unbelief. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Paul, Paul wasn't intentionally m- misleading people and using deception and, you know, sneaking around pretending that he's somebody who he's not so that he can gain access to people to torture them. You know, Paul, Paul was very clear who and what he stood for, wrong as he was. You know, Paul didn't hide. Paul wasn't using deception. Um, Paul persecuted Christians because he thought that's what would please God. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I talk about all of us having this. Um, um, we have this innate part of a core, part of who we are that can't be changed, really. We can change behaviors, but we can't change who we are. And and, and Paul, Paul was a God pleaser. Mm-hmm. And when Paul repented, Paul, uh, Paul changed his behavior. He didn't change who he was. He didn't change his love for God. His love for God was always there. He put that same passion into Christianity. That he right, had. right. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's why Paul said, "I received mercy." because i had acted in ignorance and unbelief had paul acted with oppression and uh, maleficence and you know and planning and plotting and you know sneaking around and masquerading as somebody who he's not i think paul would have treated himself the way that he tells people to Mm -hmm. be treated who do that and here's what paul says have nothing to do with them because he didn't operate outside of what the law said to do Right, just didn't sure. believe in a particular individual. Sure. So, you know, I think I think this idea of forgiveness we've we've really spun it around and and we've made it about the person who was sinned against, and it's about their inner healing and it's about you know releasing all you know we we equate bitterness with sin. They're not the same thing. Well, unless you forgive somebody, you're gonna be you're gonna have bitterness in your heart. No, you're not. Um. Oh. Forgiveness is about you. It's not about the person who sinned. Then what's the point? You know, if if we're to forgive as the Lord forgives, can you imagine God being like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna forgive you, but you're not even gonna know that I'm doing it. And it's for my own, it's for my own peace of mind. It's for my own inner healing. You know, I'm gonna get Zen when I forgive you. And um, I'm gonna feel better about myself. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is a gift for us. When when we've racked up all kinds of debt, God wipes out our debt as an act of mercy when we repent and we begin to attempt to repay that which we owe. Um, and, and so forgiveness is a gift to the person who racked up the debt, to the person who sinned when they repent when they they attempt to repay it 
it's a way of saying you no longer owe me anything. Mm-hmm. You'll never be able to make restitution for what you've done to me and how you've wrecked my life. But you no longer owe anything because you've attempted to repay it. You've attempted um, to stop what you're doing and, and stop harming other people in this way. And what I think should be done is they need to be isolated in two separate categories. I I definitely understand what you're saying. And I I can also see the other side. And I think they should be separated in order to get some type of healing place. You have to look at it as if someone has sinned against me, I need to forgive this action. Yeah. And there's the person. Yes. And this is where I understand what you're saying. I cannot reconcile with this person until I'm able to approach them and they're able to, to make this right with me. Yeah. And back to the other side, I'm a sinner. They sinned. Let me separate the person from the action in order to start. Yeah. But there's nothing that this individual can do until they make things right. And, and that, that's, that's where I definitely understand what you're saying. They, they're totally two different things. Yeah. And, you know, we just talked about this on our most recent podcast. It just, you know, it just came out uh, this week. And, you know, we talked about in Judaism, there are these different forms of forgiveness. There are three different forms of forgiveness. And one is just strictly transactional. You know, it is, it is a transaction between two people. There's no emotion attached to it whatsoever. It's all about the actions. Like you said, it's just, you know, the 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 person who was sinned against is required to forgive the other person only if that person repents until then there's no conversation of forgiveness that's even allowed they're not even allowed to to think about forgiving that other person mm-hmm. um, and the purpose is to get the other person the person who wronged you to start paying back the debt mm-hmm. to think about it if you forgive them, then they're, they're going to be like, yeah. yeah, I I don't know you anything in the first place. Of course you need to forgive me. You know, and they're yeah. just going to go on and they're going to do it to the next person. It, it's, it's almost in the sense of having love for general humanity, but then there's isolated people that you don't like yeah. for whatever the reason may be. You can have a general love for people and want to nurture and take care of people and still not like particular individuals. Yeah. Just is what it is. Like, for instance, if you're at work and the job is and the, the place catches on fire, you shouldn't distinguish, oh, I like this person, so I'm going to rescue them and leave the other person I don't like burning. No, you go rescue the person that's burning and you can still, mm, yeah, <laughs> I, don't, yeah, I sure. don't care for this person, but I'm going to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, and I, there there's this other form of forgiveness that's uh, more about the person, um, and that's more more of a heartfelt. You're for you're forgiving somebody because you have empathy on them as a person who is in need of mercy mm-hmm. and in need of compassion. Um, but again, that's not required of somebody who's blatantly going out and inflicting harm on people uh in judaism that also requires to have that empathy towards somebody that person has to be a person who's either ignorant forgive them for they you know they don't know what they're doing right 
it has to be somebody who's ignorant or somebody who um, think about the people who grow up in really broken homes, not that it excuses their sin, not that it takes it away, not that it minimizes it, but there are kids who are arsonists because they grew up in foster home and they were passed from home to home to home to home. They were abused and anything that has anything to do with order doesn't make sense to them. And so mm-hmm. they, they burn houses down. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have empathy on those people. They're not being deceptive. They're not going out and inflicting harm on innocent people just because they like doing it and they enjoy harming people. There, you know, there are different categories for people. Mm-hmm. And so the, those things require different approaches. Um, and then of course the third one is atonement. And that's where there's a complete wiping away where things mm. aren't even remembered and only God can atone for sin. Um, only God can offer that kind of forgiveness. Yeah. Um, humans can't do it and humans can't make atonement on behalf of other humans. Um, that's a God thing. So, you know, I think, I think it's just a, it's a gross misunderstanding of forgiveness where we've simplified it and turned it into this healing event, which ironically places the burden on the shoulders of the person who was wronged and not the abuser. You know, again, it's a, it's another way of letting the abuser off the hook. And you, you transitioned me to a point I want to make, like for instance, for years growing up, I worked in the customer service field and you teach listening, understanding, uh, being empathetic and and then you react yeah um no matter um no matter how good the product is if a customer thinks x y and z is wrong you're supposed to take care of it sure why is there such a reverse in thinking when it comes to like school and religious settings like the it's it's totally opposite yeah i think a big part of that is we're uncomfortable with people being uncomfortable um you know, Job's friends, I, I talk about this in other podcast episodes, Job's friends were great friends at first. They kept their mouth shut. They sat on the ash heap with Job. Uh, his whole world burned down around him, and they sat on the ash heap with him in silence. They were good friends for a while mm-hmm. until they became uncomfortable. Job was already on. Un- Job was uncomfortable from the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's Job's friends who got uncomfortable with Job being uncomfortable, then they started, uh, come on, man, what what did you do to make God angry? And they wanted him to hurry up and heal because it made them uncomfortable. I, I think we're no different thousands of years later. I, it, it's, it's awful. It's draining. It's exhausting. Um, there's no reward in at least no earthly reward in sitting with people on the ash heap when their world falls down around them. And mm-hmm. You know, one of the most lonely things in the world is to be somebody who carries trauma mm-hmm. because your friends, your friends scatter, they leave, they don't come to you, they go away from you. And, mm-hmm. and so I think in the church, we want people to hurry up and heal because it makes us uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So we tell them things like, okay, isn't it time to forgive? You know, you need to, you need to put all this bitterness aside and just move on. You know, and, and we try to force that healing process along and, and, and it just, it's not healthy. It's not a good system. Yeah. It, it's, it's just astonishing because we'll carry occupations where we're told to handle people gingerly, walk mm-hmm. them through this process. 
But then when it comes to spirituality, where it, that definitely should be in place, we do the exact opposite. Yeah, we guilt them and shame them for, for having legitimate problems. Yeah. Legitimate concerns. You know, this isn't somebody who's mad that your your new chairs in the auditorium are the wrong color. Like, mm-hmm. th- these are people who've been brutalized mm-hmm. by other human beings who who should have protected them. <laughs> like, like, think about this, Jimmy. <laughs> if I worked at a Rolls Royce dealership, and you know you have one of the best cars in the universe, and the, a customer's not satisfied with it, Mm-hmm. They're going to break their back to make <laughs> that right? person make it right. No, no matter how good the product is. Right. We're turning around and saying, Hey, the product being the victim is the victim's fault. Yeah. And and we'll do everything to make sure that the, um, the abuser is taken care of. Yeah, well, I mean, to to take, I mean, to take that analogy a little bit farther, um, we will slap a lemon label on the victim, be like, well, you know, this this presented itself as a Rolls Royce, but it's a it's a Yugo, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like this thing just won't move on. It just won't move. It won't. Right. It won't get going. It won't get happy. It won't, you know, kick up and move down the road, and you know, and so. So I think just knowing how abusers think and how they operate, the abusers are always standing there saying that they're so broken over what they've done. And oh my goodness, I you know, and that's appealing to people in ministry because it's instant. Mm-hmm. It's it's like the you know, the movie Supersize Me. I talked about that in a podcast episode. You know, um, we've become so addicted to gross, fatty, fast food that it, it there there there's nothing nutritious about it it mm. it always makes you feel gross after you eat it every time i eat fast food i'm like oh what have i done <laughs> you know but we keep going back right and then and then we tap our feet and i've seen people i've seen people throw things at employees because their food took more than 5 minutes yeah you know and 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 i think christianity has adopted or some of that culture has leaked into the church mm. And we want people to hurry up and, and get better. And we, we want the sweet, tasty, instant fix that's going to that's gonna feed people and, you know, take the hunger pangs away. And I think people are, people are leaving the church and they're holding their stomachs and saying, what have I just consumed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, 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 it reminds me of the, um, and pardon me, the, the text escapes me, but David's daughter. Um, when she was abused by her brother mm-hmm. and yeah. all that came back to haunt David because he didn't react to it. Yeah. I don't blame his brother for being angry yeah. and doing what he needed to, what he felt he needed to do. That's sure. the best. That's humanity. Sure. And because of David's not taking care of the victim, it caused a whole tumultuous set of events. Yeah. And and David did that repeatedly. Oh, Absalom. Oh, Absalom. And his advisors came around. They're like, you're an idiot. The people are going to see you. They're going to see you wailing for, for your son, who is nothing but a, a menace. And, uh, you know, he's out, he's out to kill people. He's out yeah. to kill you. Like, and you're mourning over his death. Like, 
like a blubbering idiot. You know, it's <laughs> obviously not written that way, but when I read it, I'm like, yeah, David's advisors are a hundred percent right. Like mm-hmm. David's wailing over the, the wrong people at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a time to lament. There's a time to grieve, but you know, at the expense of victims, um, David was bad about that. He was really bad about that. And, and you know what happens? And it's almost in a sense the way the scripture is. She's written off. You don't hear nothing else about her. Yeah. Poor Absalom. Yeah. yeah. And that's what that's what's happening to the victims. Yeah. So with that being said, I'm going to try to fast forward a little bit. Yeah. What's the best way to cloak care? on the victims as far as the church goes, because I understand they're in vulnerable places. They probably have Mm -hmm. a lack of trust. Um, Maybe even want to be left alone to a certain degree. And then you'd want to tread lightly on overcrowding them. Yeah. How can we be there for them? Man, it's, um, you have to be willing to be humble. Mm Mm-hmm and not get the ministry ego in place where we we consider transformations a win for not for the kingdom primarily mm-hmm. but primarily for ourselves um and i started to realize this and do a lot of self reflection and and be like you know when our whole world crumbled i was like do we really have this big of an ego? Mm. You know, and I started doing self-reflection and I was like, you know, I came in, I was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to come in and I'm going <clears> to, <throat> I'm going to change the, the church and, you know, make changes and, you know, get people to behave better. And, you know, and it becomes this w- without intentionally doing it, we, we build this big ego in ministry and mm. we can't treat victims that way. Jesus never did. People left constantly. And Jesus didn't chase them down and be like, you know, come on, you got to be a good Christian and and you got to, you know, you got to get to church. And, you know, he didn't shame people and guilt people for not healing fast enough. And Mm. he he didn't do that. He just, he was present for people and he listened and he never, at least the way that I read the Bible, he never considered people who walked away a loss. Mm. Um, and and I look at the derogatory things that we say to people who are bleeding out internally some people can't step over the threshold of a church because it's so triggering to them and I hear things I hear people just make assumptions well they're lazy they just don't want to be here um, they're unfaithful. You know, I, I, I hear these kinds of derogatory things that are spewed at victims. And I think how bad must that hurt for them? Mm. Um, they don't want to lose community that for some victims, that's the only thing they have left. That, that little bit of community that they have at church, they don't want to leave. Um, so many survivors walk away because they have to. And so I think the best thing that we can do in the church is we create safe spaces for people who can't walk into an organized, institutionalized church building. 
And, mm. and I started going back and looking at scriptures throughout the gospels, start counting the number of times that people begged to follow Jesus. And he said, no, go be with your family or go in peace. The woman washing his, his feet with her hair and her snot and her tears. And, <laughs> you know, and Jesus says, he says, first of all, your sins are forgiven, which is kind of an, kind of an interesting thing, you know, going back to forgiveness. What was she doing that Jesus said, your sins are forgiven? Mm. Look at the humility. Look at, she's trying to repay the harm that she's done throughout her life and the embarrassment. I mean, this lady humiliated herself in front of all these grown men totally embarrassed her her life was just i mean what a wreck and jesus says first of all your sins are forgiven and then the next thing he says to her luke chapter 7 he says go in peace Mm. he doesn't say come he doesn't say follow me he doesn't say you know here's somebody who really would be an asset to to the church you know i'm gonna i'm gonna disciple you and you know jesus he didn't do that for certain people for certain people there's a certain season in their life where they just need to go and they need to be alone. Mm-hmm. And Jesus recognized that with those individuals. Some people he demanded they follow him. Other people he demanded they go home and not follow him. They they got it. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think if we just use more discernment mm. and and really understand that going to church at the church building is not the end and, and be all. Yeah. And um, you know what that, that, that's that what, Jesus is. And that's what inspired me to do this in the way I kind of looked at branding is probably a strong word, but there is a sense of life outside of these four walls. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that we're running into in life that we just don't know how to navigate or know who to come to about. Yeah. Like, yeah. Especially within the churches of Christ. How many Jimmy Hintons are there? Yeah. I Some know people would story. say, hopefully, hopefully not more than one. <laughs> and, and, and hopefully this is a, a, an Elijah situation where, okay, it's all about me, but God is saying, Hey, there's more, but I'm looking to be able to launch stories like yours that is not just on this small regional scale that hopefully there's more jimmy hinton's out there and maybe jimmy knows a little bit more than the other little jimmy's if you will he's able to provide more light they just need to find where the light is you know what i you bring an interesting point up and i i think there are and i i think one of the things i see is that abuse survivors are so beaten down and frustrated with the church and they've given up all hope yeah um i can imagine and and i come back and i say like there are other people who are getting it right i'm not the only one you know it's it's rare unfortunately um but i'm not the only one who's ever reported an abuser i'm not the only one who's ever reported a family member in the church um it's it's happened it's happening now um, there are courageous people who are who are leading churches. There are courageous people who are leading uh, people who can't attend church. 
uh, in organized religion, you know, Porch Swing Ministries. I'm, I serve on the board. Um, good friend of mine, Christine Parker, uh, founded Porch Swing Ministries, which the whole purpose is to minister to the outcasts, people who don't belong, or they're they're made to feel like they don't belong, mm. um, in in the right click, you know, because they're suffering, they're struggling. Um, so you know, people are people are stepping up, and there are people who are finding ways to minister to people in out of the box ways, in ways that Jesus did, uh, where we get outside of the the four walls of the church. And we meet people where they are. So yeah, I'm I'm actually encouraged, and I I think it's really awesome that you're trying to find those people and and to highlight their stories. They're out there. I'm telling you, they're out there. I mean, cause this was an issue that always that has always touched me and and, and my wife. She's ten times more, um, and we have different approaches because she'll see things on the news and go Wolverine, and sure. I just kind of sit back and analyze it um so it's it, it's something that we've always talked about what if this happened to our kids this after i said oh don't let my casualness fool you i would probably kill them yeah yeah <laughs> and i sure. have to I have to temperament myself um so when i initially came across your story and come to find out you have a podcast okay i need to take this is something i can plug into my ears and learn because yes, this is happening in the church. I yeah. knew I knew of a man that was uh, convicted for it. Uh, he was much older than me. It was kind of some haziness about it, um, but I knew of it. Even when I was younger, and I'm not sure if the um, I don't looking back, I'm not sure if the man the man meant anything in that moment. But he gave me a tap that I didn't like. Yeah, and I immediately told my father. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my father god bless him got right up in the space yeah and um maybe it was maybe it wasn't but i w- i knew i was empowered that if something happened to me to speak up about it yeah um yeah so which actually leads me to the next thing How, what are methods that we can empower children so that yeah, embar- think- so embarrassment isn't like part of the equation anymore no, you know, I think um, the the biggest thing that an abuser fears, maybe the only thing that they fear, is prison. Not getting caught. They don't fear getting caught. I have letters from my dad from prison where he, he, he laughs about it. He's like, if anything, getting caught, he's like, that just emboldens us because he's like, we already have 9,000 different scenarios that you know, we, we can talk ourselves out of it. He said, there's no fear of getting caught. Um, and that's, that's different from you and I, these guys are wired very differently. Um, so if we think like, you know, building strong policies and putting cameras up in the church building and things like that are going to scare them or deter them. It's not, uh, maybe a handful mm. would be deterred by that. But, uh, the biggest thing they fear is going to jail and, uh, Going to jail is going to happen if a kid is very educated. Uh, they don't like kids who are educated, um, and and abusers will know. You know what you what you described. People talk about the grooming process. I talk about the testing process. Uh, both take place, but primarily, 
uh, what, what abusers do on the front end is they test people, uh, both victims and, uh, and the adults. And some of the things are just touching them, tapping them on the shoulder, uh, mm -hmm. placing a hand there for too long, you know, really benign things at first, mm -hmm. um, but they're testing to see what the reaction is. And, you know, you're, uh, both you and your dad <laughs> made it very clear that you knew that this guy was, was being inappropriate. The guy's not going to, he's not going to go back. Mm -hmm. the, the majority of abusers are not going to go back to a child like that and take it a step further because they're, they're afraid that if that child speaks up and knows exactly what, what they're up to, they're going to be able to talk to police in an educated manner and mm. they're going to wind up in prison. They don't want to wind up in prison. Yeah. Um, so I, just I teaching had, our kids to, you know, to be educated. I, I've, I've often prayed that that was an overreaction on my part, but you know, and especially in listening to your podcast, um, that can't be minimized. There's no, no. Way. And, and it could have been nothing, but it could have been something. It, it, you know, and, and um, maybe my reaction paused him. I, I pray that there was no, if he was doing such a thing, that there was no one else. Yeah, so that I've also tried to rectify that in my brain. Yeah, so you know, I think as far as teaching kids, I think just boundaries. Teach them what proper boundaries are, and I'm not talking about just good touch, bad touch. I mean, that's certainly that's um, that's a good thing to teach them, and that's noble. But um, you know, things like. Uh, sitting in people's laps. Um, mm. My kids knew from the time they were young, like you don't just crawl up into people's laps. That's not okay. Um, you, you can crawl up into your parents' laps, mm -hmm. uh, but if somebody tries to put you in their lap, run away, mm. um, yell. And, and, and again, you know, that's not saying, well, that person's an abuser because, you know, Mrs. Jones put this kid in her lap and she must be a pedophile. You know, that's it. It doesn't work that way, but mm. when you teach your kids proper boundaries, that it it's not okay for people to touch them and kiss all over them, and you know, and to tussle their hair and to say how cute and sexy they are in their little Sunday dress, and you know, those things aren't they're not acceptable boundaries. So, talking to kids when when they're very young about that, and just reinforcing, and even starting in the home, like we started with. Um, when, when our kids were old enough to be potty trained, mm. we would take them in the bathroom instead of doing it out in the, out in the open living room. You know, my daughter, we, we built a, a box <laughs> that was an outhouse where she could go in where her <laughs> potty seat was and she, she could go in her makeshift um, outhouse and have a potty break where nobody could see her. Um, our kids, without us telling them to do this, they would kick their stuffed animals out of the bathroom when they had to go to the potty because they, they wanted their privacy. And they're like, you know, we don't want it. We don't want anybody in. They always knock before they enter a bathroom. Our kids, we taught them to respect boundaries and, and what proper boundaries are. It's not okay for somebody to just walk in on you when you're in the bathroom. Yeah. And, and you know what is, as much as I am troubled by the situation, my wife, God bless her had to transform a lot of my thought process um, when uh, I began a relationship with her and, and, and with children because I'm naturally this touchy-feely, huggy guy. Sure. Um, and sh 
she was the first to bring it to my attention. Basically, you got to relax on the things that you do. Yeah. And I'm like, what? Like, yeah. I just like playing with kids. I'm, I, I, I don't know what it is about me, but now I get it. I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to find myself in the situation. I don't want there to be any right. misconceptions. And that, like you said, there just needs to be boundaries. And I and I had to reprogram a lot of my thought process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thank God that she, you know, started bringing that kind of stuff to my attention. Because, like I said, with her about her kids, all claws are out. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, you know, and I think I think if we start there, we start with boundaries. Um, that minimizes this this notion where we become so fearful and so paranoid that somebody's an abuser and you know and I, like you look at the grooming grooming behaviors and you know i i ask people to list what the grooming behaviors are of pedophiles when i do trainings that's one of the first things i'll ask them just list them we'll write them down and we'll make a list and they write them down i said okay now real talk how many of you guys do this stuff mm. and, and i'll put my hand up i'll be like there are times when my wife and I buy presents for kids. There are times when, you know, uh, I'm alone with my kids or I'm alone with another kid or, you know, in passing in a hallway or some like all of us, if we really think about it, um, we look like pedophiles. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, we, we have to have a, a much better conversation instead of this generic you know, somebody's going to be handing out candy and, you know, they're only going to have friends with kids, which doesn't describe hardly any abusers. Um, and we need to start talking about boundaries and, and, and be like, okay, just because somebody's violating boundaries doesn't mean they're an abuser. But if somebody's repeatedly violating boundaries and has no respect for boundaries and makes excuses and shames people for bringing up that they're crossing boundaries, then you've got a problem. Yep. But you have something tangible that you can address. And that needs to be written in, you know, into written policy in our churches too. You know, what are the boundaries? What are the consequences for violating the boundaries? How many times are they allowed to violate these boundaries before, um, before they're kicked out? That needs to be spelled out in policy. Absolutely. So, um, should, um, what are the best ways as far as churches go? Is there um, in our local churches to have like a similar to like an AA type thing for victims? Is that, have you had trouble with that? Or do you think people are, are relatively <laughs> private about it? How, it? how do you open those doors up? It is, it is really challenging because obviously it's such an embarrassing shameful thing that that happened to them even though they know it wasn't their fault um there's still that stigma that's attached to people who who are victimized by somebody else um when you when you do groups you kind of take that anonymity away and now you're sitting in a room where you're looking around and you know that every single person sitting in a chair has, has been abused and that's intimidating. And, you know, there's another component that I never realized until, till a couple years into this, how intimidating churches are. Um, 
and how triggering churches are for abuse victims mm-hmm. uh, because of how poorly we've responded in the past. Um, so, you know, I think given those components, it's, I, I, I really don't know. Um, I know of churches who have started groups mm-hmm. for survivors, but it was survivors who, who took the initiative and they started the groups and they, they used their own discernment and, you know, it wasn't something that the leaders came up with and said, okay, here are the guidelines and here's what we have to do. It was survivors who took that charge and and they said, based on what I need in my life, I want to provide that for other people. Mm. Um, And I've seen that at a couple of different places and um, I think it's worked well. Okay. Um, And, and I think I, I want to say either heard it or read it that um, church leaders are mandated to report incidents of abuse. Yeah. Um, and you probably have already talked about it, but why do you think there's such a hesitancy knowing that there's a certain level of empowerment to do so? Um, why do you think there's a hesitancy, especially when you're dealing with those that are so defenseless? I think it boils down to we this is human nature uh, but we think that we're really perceptive and we're not there's i mean i i talk about the science behind that we are not as perceptive as we think we are mm-hmm. um so i hear this all the time like if something were going on here i'd be the first to know about it uh, would you because because abuse happens under our noses all the time and and abusers are incredibly skilled at deception and masquerading and hiding it so one we're not as perceptive as we think we are and i think that illusion that we're perceptive contributes to um to the to the denial the sense of denial you know when when i see this happen all the time in the church when somebody is pointed out as a potential abuser Mm. they'll be like no it couldn't be him we played golf together for the last 30 years. You know, I, I know this person, he's one of my best friends. I hear this a lot when I consult with churches, this person is one of my very best friends to which my comeback is, am I really the person to be making the argument with that you have a close relationship with the person who's the object of, um, of an accusation? Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm not really, I'm not really the one to make that argument to. So let's try again. <laughs> um, so I think that's part of it, the denial. I think the other thing is um, in, in our human mind, we can't wrap our minds around the idea that somebody we know, we trust, we love, we adore could do something so horrific. Those are two very different realities. Yeah. Um, and so, so we can't process that. And then we start coming up with things like, well, maybe – Maybe the victim or alleged victim, maybe something happened, but surely they're mistaken about some of the the details. And we talk ourselves out of reporting. Maybe, I don't know that there's really a smoking gun in this instant, Uh, you know, and we talk ourselves out of, out of reporting, even when we're mandated reporters. The thing with mandated reporting is it's not your job to determine whether something was factual or not, or whether you have enough information or not, Mm -hmm. uh, the only threshold, and it's a low bar, but the only threshold is reasonable suspicion. Mm -hmm. 
if you have reason to believe that abuse could have happened, not that it did happen, but it that but that it could have happened, you're mandated to report it. Period. Yeah. And it just it, it still takes me back to this customer service scenario. Someone can bring a product back and say it's broken. No questions asked. Yeah. That's back. right. Here's your money. We'll check it out. Yeah. We'll look and, into it. And on top of that, <laughs> how else can we help you? Yeah. <laughs> and that's right. And we don't do that for victims. No. It's it's astonishing. And you know, you, you I, I I retweeted one of the uh, videos, I think in the last year or two that you were uh, at the seminar and it talked it had the people talking about magicians and things that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Doctors Macknick and Martinez Conde. Yeah. Yeah. And the one thing I wrestled with or just want to understand, why do you think, and you were alluding to it, why do you think they feel so emboldened? Is it like a thrill seeking type of deal that they, yeah, the Larry Nassers of the world that they can be talking to the parents right mm-hmm. in their face and doing X, Y, and Z with their hands. What is that thrill? hundred percent hands down. It It is absolutely the thrill of, of doing it. I, I mean, again, I have letters from my dad where he talks about it in great detail and he says, and I use this at a training. I just did a training for the military um, back in September in Kansas. And I put up a quote from, from my dad, you know, it was a, it was a training on deception. Um, and I put this quote up from a letter from my dad and he said, it's one thing to abuse the, 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 the child and to get away with it. Okay. So first of all, just that statement, if you stop and think about that, it's one thing to abuse a child and, and get away with it. Like, and he's talking about the adrenaline, the thrill. I don't know about you, but when I do something that, that harms somebody, I feel like a total piece of crap. I don't get energized by that. I don't get adrenaline rushes when I'm like, ooh, man, I, I just put the hurting on that person. But abusers do. They're wired differently. Um, their hypothalamus lights up like a Christmas tree. The pleasure center in their brain lights up when they're inflicting harm on people. They are literally wired differently than us. There are all kinds of studies about this. Um, so he said it's one thing to do, you know, to abuse a child and get away and get away with it. But he said, when you can do the abuse in front of their parents, that high is much better. Oh my God. And he, and then he goes on, he wasn't even done with that. And he said, it's like, I'm walking into a pharmacy and I have every drug available to me. That's going to make that high even greater. And I happen to be the pharmacist. That's how he's describing raping children, including his own. So there's, there's this disconnect in the church because we think that abusers are like us. We think that they're racked with guilt and remorse and that eventually, you know, there's going to, there's going to be a confession because the guilt just builds up and they just can't, you know, deal with it. They don't think like you and I. That's why in the Bible, there are different descriptions for them. That's why there are different consequences for them. That's why Paul says things like stay away from them, have nothing to do with them. That's why um, Peter calls them in second Peter too. He calls them um, like dogs returning to their vomit. They don't stop. They, they know what they're licking up off the ground. Mm. They do it anyway, because that's who they are. That's how they're wired. Peter doesn't say have mercy on them, have Bible studies with them, forgive them. Peter doesn't say any of that. He says, um, you know, he says their end is their destruction. They've earned it. 
Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, I think I think if we have proper categories for people and we 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 think through this reasonably and objectively, it makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. And those excuses that we make for for abusers start to melt away. They they don't hold up anymore. Absolutely. So, and one other thing, like you said, they're wired differently. Um, like, what is the in your studies? What is the psychosis of the abuser that they're able to shift the blame from their self to the victim? Is it yeah. is it as simple as deflection or manipulation, or a little bit of both? Yeah, so I, I disagree with um, some of the researchers on this. They'll talk about um, cognitive distortions, which is self-lies. And they'll say the cognitive distortions are so great that they they believe that these kids are uh, – they're initiating it and that these kids, they, these kids want it and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's total bogus. I think – I know abusers well enough to know that when an, a, a person is – interviewing them in prison they're feeding them the biggest line of garbage um, intentionally they're intentionally misleading researchers um my dad used all the lines that you hear i mean every abuser says it my goodness i was minding my own business and this kid just came up to me and you know in my dad's words i they successfully depanced me three times um i'm 41 years old i can't think of a single instance in my life where a little six-year-old, seven-year-old kid was flirting with me or or attempted to disrobe me, um, you know? Like, it doesn't happen. So at first, I was like, does he really believe his own garbage? Because, you know, in letters, he writes about it constantly, about, you know, the, these kids, you know, it's all the victim blaming, like the victims that they did it. I was minding my own business and, you know, sure what I did was wrong, but, it, and, and so researchers will say that the cognitive distortions are so high that abusers actually believe their, their own garbage. I don't think that's true because I've seen the manuals that my father has written from prison where he is so methodically meticulous about every single detail. He knows exactly what he's doing from start to finish, Mm -hmm. which is why the analog to magicians is so fitting. You know, magicians don't get caught because they're, they're practiced, they're rehearsed. They know the routine from start to finish, front to back, they've rehearsed it over and over and over and over again and in front of a mirror even. Mm. And abusers are no different. They're so rehearsed at what they do that rare is it that they make mistakes. So I, I don't believe for a second that abusers actually believe that these kids are initiating and coming on to them. They say it. But I don't think they believe it. They know exactly what they're doing. It's it's similar to the wolf description that you were talking about. Yeah. Earlier, and um, even in the Bible, the wolves in sheep's clothing. They, yeah, for sure. How encouraged are you becoming since uh, you began the podcast? Your work with Grace, um, Port Swing. Um, are you still doing um, 
what is it called? Church uh, Protect. Are you still involved with that as well? Yeah, no. No, okay. I left. Uh, I left that organization in 2017. Okay. And but okay, nonetheless, how um, how encouraged are you so with uh, with all the things coming out in in the Catholic Church, uh, the things that you're doing? Um, how encouraged are you becoming? Um, a big part of me is very encouraged uh, because because survivors are tired of being quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, they're demanding justice. And, uh, and in a lot of cases, justice is coming, maybe in small doses, but justice is coming to survivors. So um, I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged that uh, survivors are becoming advocates. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've, they've endured it. They've, they've lived it. They've suffered, and they're doing something about it. They're helping people. Um, those numbers are 50 times more than they were nine years ago when I first reported my dad, That's you know, incredible. there, you didn't have survivor blogs or uh, podcast and blogs. When we started podcasting, um, that was only two years ago. And we were, we were known as like the regular podcast on sexual abuse. Now there, there are tons of them. That's good. Um, and, and they're, they're all great. They're really good. It's, it's super good quality. Uh, good content. I'm excited that there are more resources out there. That's good. Um, That's good. So yeah, I'm, I'm greatly encouraged on that side. And then there's another side of me that gets deflated because I look at the church and, and the church is very good at undoing good work when it comes to abuse advocacy. Mm. Um, so there, there's still a lot of, not all churches. I mean, again, there, there are good churches out there, mm-hmm. uh, who get it. They just, they're doing great. Um, but the majority of churches have a lot of work to do. When you say undoing, um, and I know you've talked about the re-victimization process, what can you pinpoint that they're exactly undoing? I want to make this magnified. Yeah. Um, tearing down the work that survivors do uh, or that advocates do and to say that, well, they, they just, they're disgruntled people who have an ax to grind with the church. No, they're actually not. Um, They survivors, survivors of abuse have a million other things that they'd rather be doing with their time than speaking about abuse and bringing it up again and again. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the church, has historically said these people just won't go away. They're a parasite on the church and all they want to do is malign the name of the church and malign the, the good name of good people. And, you know, they need to go away. Um, even, even Ed Stetzer uh, jumped on that train a while ago. And I, I kind of blasted him on Twitter. He, the survivors were asking legitimate questions about a summit that he hosted on abuse. Mm. And, you know, I thought they were, they were good questions. They were good concerns with some of the speakers. They had concerns. Ed Stetzer started, he started retweeting some of the posts and some of these people are good friends of mine. And he was calling them trolls and Mm. saying, I wish these trolls would just go away. Um, And these were like, really well-known victims jules woodson was one of them you know she's Mm -hmm. 
uh, Jules is a good friend and she was um, called the face of, of the church Two movement. Um, you know, she came out when Andy Savage um, abused her, you know, January of 2018, Jules Woodson came forward publicly um, and Ed Stetzer, he, like he was, he blocked her. Uh, he was calling her a troll and he was doing that to a bunch of people, but you know, he's just one example, but I think, I think that really undoes the work and it deflates survivors when survivors need to be given a platform yeah. and they need to be elevated for their courage in speaking up. They're not a nuisance. They're not wishing harm on the church. They're hoping the church gets it. They're hoping the church protects people and does it well. And they're willing to help. That's true. You know, they're, they're not just pointing the finger, <laughs> hoping that all churches die. That's mm -hmm. not the case. If I came forth and said I had an alcohol problem, everybody would love me. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, so uh, I know you got better things to do with your time. So let's uh, get ready to wrap it up. How do you balance all these things going on in your life? You got a lot going on. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I just take on more projects. <laughs> my my wife says, don't you have enough jobs already? And uh <laughs> No, but in all seriousness, like my my wife and I both have learned, and and mostly me, I've had to learn. Uh, she's she's good at boundaries. I'm not. Um, ministry alone, full time ministry alone, can can wipe you dry. Um, add to that podcasting. Add to that blogging regularly on heavy topics. Um, add to that training churches uh, with grace, add to that, you know, sitting on the board with porch swing and, and doing the work there, um, add to that the independent work that I do, consulting with churches, um, training churches, training military police departments, you know, it, the workload is never ending. Not enough hours in a day for you. No, no. <laughs> um, so, so the one thing that my wife and I both have learned is that we had to be very intentional about making our home a sanctuary mm. where every dollar that's put into the house is, is intentional and it's intentional to make our house feel relaxing and mm. to feel safe and to feel comfortable. That's good. Um, and so like we both have this weird thing. We don't like to go on vacations because we just think about all the money that's flying out the window. And we're like, <laughs> okay, that, that was a nice three days that we just spent $2,000 on. Mm. Um, so we started, we started redirecting some of those funds and putting them into the home and, you know, nothing, nothing elaborate, but just stuff that's cozy, like, yeah. you know, working on our deck and making it, getting good furniture where we can sit and just look at the yard and listen to wildlife and yeah. chill run, out. run around in snow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jump in snow drifts and snow blow the driveway in my shorts and t-shirt. <laughs> so so that, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So some of those silly things too, like, you know, I, I do the cold exposure and um, that is a thing. It's called the Wim Hof method. Um <laughs> And there's good science behind it. There are a lot of medical benefits. Really? So I'm, I'm not just completely crazy, but, okay. you know, I have fun with it. it it's something silly. I, I don't have hobbies. So going and playing in the snow and posting pictures and videos and making people laugh, like, that's, that's healing. 
I, I'm scared to, but I may have to try it one day. I'm in Cleveland. So I'm... <laughs> That's my boy. <laughs> yeah, oh, we, you got to try it. Oh, we get lake effect snow. It's terrible. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> uh, any last resources that you want to provide before we get out of here? Um, yeah, I, not, not to self plug, but, um, my Please website, do. I, do. you know, I, I try to keep, I try to keep decent resources that will actually help churches. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not here to criticize the church. I'm here to help the church. Uh, you know, I, I do consulting with churches. I wish more people would either know about that or take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's online. It's, it's, it's painless. It's helpful. Uh, I do trainings. Uh, of course, there's grace, godly response to abuse in the Christian environment, mm-hmm. uh, netgrace.org, uh, started by Billy Graham's grandson, Boz, Boz Chivijan. Uh, mm-hmm. Boz is a you know great guy, great friend. Um, Porch Swing Ministries. Um, I serve on the board there for survivors who feel like you've been abandoned by the church. That's a great resource. Um and uh, Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast by uh, one of our, the patrons of our podcast, Kelly Downing. Fantastic, fantastic podcast for survivors by a survivor. Mm. Um, Kelly yeah, Downing. There, there are resources out there. there, there there's good stuff. Okay. And uh, you got a book coming. One, one more time. Plug that book you got coming. I do. So the book is uh, The Devil Inside. How my minister father abused uh, dozens of victims in the home and church for decades and how I stopped them. Nice, uh, nice. That will be available on Amazon and um, maybe at your local bookstore. Uh, I don't know that yet, but uh, it should be released in mid-February. February. February. Um, I send my well wishes and my prayers, uh, not only for yourself, your mother, and all your, your, your family, your congregation. By the way, I have an odd congregation. We don't start till one thirty, so I try to catch a Sunday school class. I love your Sunday school class. Oh, nice. Um, Very cool. So subscribe to Jimmy and his mother's podcast, the Speaking Out on Sex Abuse podcast. You can find it on YouTube, wherever you decide to su- subscribe your podcast. Uh, please check out Jimmy at jimmyhinton.org. Uh, Jimmy Hinton is also on Facebook. Um, Twitter is what Jimmy at Jimmy Hinton twelve at Jimmy Hinton twelve. Okay. Yeah. Mom at uh, at Clara Hinton. Also check out her website findingahealingplace.com. Uh, Jimmy, I thank you for your time. I will be in touch. If that is your cell phone, I will be bugging you soon. Awesome. I look forward <laughs> to it. Sorry to hold up so much of your time, but I really, really appreciate your education, and I hope it benefits uh, any of my audience. And uh, just a tremendous, yeah, it's, tremendous it's interview. Thank you. Yeah, and I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you doing the podcast and uh, taking this subject up. It's awesome. Roy, appreciate it, brother. Thank you. Thanks for checking out this episode of Liberation. Subscribe to the show and follow Liberation on Twitter and Instagram at liberation underscore pod liberation is sponsored by doodlebugs by davida thoughtful handmade jewelry designs inspired by love peace and unity shop doodlebugs at doodlebugs by site and for the etsy lovers it's doodlebugs by 
Liberation.com. Use the promo code Liberation and get 10% off your order. Follow Doodlebugs on Twitter at Doodlebugs for you. That's Doodlebugs, the number four, the letter U. And Instagram, Doodlebugs by DeVita. <laughs>